Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Sue Falsoni sees rehab from multiple perspectives. Having been in the game and working with high-level athletes, including the Dodgers roster, she knows that getting an injured player back on the field is a complex task. First, her commitment to the athlete's health is paramount, but as an asset to the organization, she also must be completely transparent with her diagnosis. How does she navigate this dual role and stay true to both entities? Keep a cool head and remain objective. It's not personal, it's simply her job. Her experiences have provided incredible insight as to how an athlete is psychologically affected by injury, sometimes as a result of being ostracized by coaching staff, other players, or the PT inability to manage the athlete's psychosocial response. Getting your player off the IR list is dependent on the body's ability to heal itself, plain and simple. Find out how best to prepare your athlete for that moment when they're physically and mentally ready to hit the ground running again. This is episode 313. This building in this room is not a safe space. With that said, ladies and gentlemen, you are... Tuning into the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Ing. 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 This is Luke. Who are you? Uh, great shoes, McQuilkin. They used to call me in college. Nobody, my my nobody, fashion college. Nobody called you that. Seriously. Nobody's ever <laughs> called you great shoes. Well, Little known fact that you will be learning today is that the university techs attended as D3 All-Star. Marymount University. Is also, is, is, is also a school for fashionistas. Oh, Olympic fashionistas. Education program. It, it that's is. Why, that's check why, out. That's no, it's seriously. Check out Portfolio Motion, Marymount University, and another one. The woman that started Georgetown Cupcake, that's also now a TV show, she went to Marymount. There's is a fun the, fact. Is that where you got all those really smart, cool scarfs that you like to rock off sitting around? <laughs> so if you've ever been wondering why Max is always wearing scarfs like Lenny Kravis. <laughs> Dude. Every I, a haircut uh, like three, three or four times I've seen Tex out and he hasn't seen me. And he's usually rocking a scarf, which is weird with his weird quaff hair. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, so John, let's piece this almost together like, almost like he's like French and he needs a beret. So we're talking quaff hair, beaver quaff, right? We're talking French scarf. Yeah. We're talking P- performance fishing gear. Oh, pink. PFGs we're and scarves. Tucked in Wrangler. Yeah. And we're talking boating. To top shoe. it off. Texas brand new fresh Vans female boating shoes. Female, no, they're, dude, they're my summer shoes. So, dude, I saw him out. Right, he had the quaff hair. Yes, um, he was rocking his scarf, uh-huh. and he had these shorts on that had little whales on them with his boating uh. shoes. It was kind of a weird look, but you know what? He was working it. Um, Did he uh, shave those legs like a boss? No, Tex. no, never. You shave your legs there was like a, a lot. normal man. But no. the weird thing was the fact that like he was wearing um, like women's socks. You know the ones that you can't see. Yeah, the no show. But those are that's legit. That's unisex. Why? Because you wear them. No, but you only wear them because you're lazy and just steal your girl socks. No. <laughs> well, the even weirder part is Tex wasn't wearing those. He was just wearing pantyhose. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's wearing that sock on his uh, junk. No, no. He was wearing pantyhose like he worked at like an Asian nail place. Hey, no, it's one big sock, guys. <laughs> hey, oh, from the floor. Yeah, because, you know, pantyhose and sandals are a good look for Tex. Ladies and gentlemen. They're summer shoes. <laughs> if you think that we're going to get off the subject of Texas shoes, I've got news for you. We're not. So here's what they look like. They are wider than they are long. You can see the whole top of Texas foot. They have a four-inch heel. 
This is not no, true. No. Pointed toe. Well, no. what's, what's crazy is you can see his nails because he paints his toenails. That yeah. was the most disturbing part. This is also not true. I mean, and the crazy part is the toenail pay, uh, uh, nail polish matched his scarf. Same color. It was no, a nice it, mop. it was the same color as my PFG. Does the um, scarf match um, the toenails? What does PFG stand for? Performance fishing gear. Just means it's a, a it's an SP shirt with all sorts of pockets. SPF shirt. So I don't have to wear sunscreen. I wear the shirt. So you have a shirt with lots of pockets in it. Yeah, you oh, yeah. for your leaders and uh, your your bait uh, it, and whatnot. Fit plenty of beers in those which, pockets. Which ones to hold the bobbers? It's the beers and koozies what, and some change. What's the test weight of your line? That's what I bring out to the bar. Who are you reeling in? Oh, he he carries the heavy stuff to reel in the whales. If you know what I'm saying. Oh, well, that's what he got the scarf for. Make sure he can dab his forehead to get a little sweat off of there. Mm-hmm. You know uh, who's also a big scarf wear? Uh, Starrett. He goes to Europe every time I see uh, Kelly. Your boy Rick, who's also an uh, artist. Uh, he's a huge scarf guy. Yeah, and yeah. he's so fucking cool. If you're exactly. like, oh, I can wear a scarf because Rick does, you're talking, you're barking up the wrong tree. I'll never sign Rick off. Rick is, he does have a lot of style. Did yeah. you see those we, shoes he was wearing? Exactly. Not boating shoes. We were hanging out at your birthday, and he was giving me some tips. He's like, text the quaff. I love it. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, you know what you need to add? A, a scarf. scarf. <laughs> and a raspberry beret, the kind you find at the secondhand store. And what's wrong with your shoes? Why are they cold, <laughs> covering your foot like that? You need to open up the top of that foot so <laughs> yeah. it breathe. Exactly. <laughs> that That's is- where I got the advice. <laughs> no, say it ain't so. Oh, yeah. We'll have to bring them oh, on. Oh, God damn it. That's funny. Well, it's false. Uh, you know, the best is I just have this, like, uh, vision of text just strolling down, you know, like uh, South Lamar, you know, wearing his, you know, performance fishing shirt, his short little whale shorts, his, you know, boating shoes, and a nice scarf and a quaff, and uh, and us just driving up and throwing a fruit brick. punch at him. A brick. I was going to say a fruit, but like a 40-ounce fruit punch. Just like a Hawaiian <laughs> punch can? Like, remember the can? <laughs> yeah. Hawaiian punch that were like, yeah, we just, like a coffee can? <laughs> That's a can of wine, mm. but... Oh, oh God damn it! Just when I didn't think my day could get any better, yeah. this happened. Well, this is work, guys. Yep, let's barrel on. I don't. I mean, we got to save some episode, or some content for the next episodes, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Here's the problem: we are on the onset of summer, or is it already summer? Oh, we're in the thick of it. We're in the thick of summer. We're sweating out here, and uh, well, you know, some of us are. Some of us are wearing performance. Fishing gear. Well, you're not. You're clearly wearing weed. When this comes out, I will be. I'll set set a reminder. But here's what we're going to talk about today, people. It is a little program called a Johnny Bod. Listen, if you're out there, you're banging weights, and you're not following Johnny Bod, and you're not stacking on the most ridiculous curl sets on the internet with some arm explosion and pec blasting and booty blasters... And you're not tacking that on your daily training. I don't know who you are. I don't even know why you're here. I don't know why you're listening. It is beach season, baby. And that means you need to get that beach body going. And Johnny Bod's the place to stop. And hey, you need a little nutritional guidance? That's what that leaning protocol is for. You know, if you take Johnny Bod and you stack it with Johnny Wad and the leaning protocol, um, I don't know if like the word unstoppable is how I would label you, but it's probably how I'm just going to think about you. You will become unstoppable. I believe there was a like ancient document on the making of Michelangelo's David. And it turns out that David was actually following Johnny Wad plus Johnny Bod plus the leaning protocol. <sighs> wow. And that's that was the likeness that was created. It's amazing. And I've heard that 
if you also want to lose, let's say, seven to eight pounds in your Tex McQuilkin, you could just shear off all your body hair. <laughs> Get it? Body hair. No, I waxed. Oh, oh yeah, no. $20,000. Well, go Wade's Army. We can't bring up the waxing because then we're going to have to go to a really deep emotional place. And we're going to have to get uh, Sue to talk a little to Tex about how to release that pain through some dry needling. You know what you need a needle? In your eye. I was going to say his butthole. Needle in the butt. Know what to do with it. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are interested in that leaning protocol, powerathletehq.com slash nutrition. We'll get you there, and you'll learn everything you need to know. And if you want to take on Johnny Bod, head to johnnywad.com, and you just click right there, bing, bang, boom. You could be following in less than five minutes. Boom. Getting that arm blast on. Calves, too. Boom. Oh, well, Why are you giving me dirty looks? Because he's, he's like thinks he has better calves than you. Uh, he I does. Do. Uh, it's, he, he does. But have you ever seen them? I mean, they're, they're thick. Mm-hmm. I mean, they kind of remind me of a Clydesdale. You know, it's like just for show. I'm happy that I'm packing for show and for go because if you want to go look at the Deuce video of 1RM calf raise. Oh, this is bullshit. Dude, I'm just telling you what the results were in. Yeah, you got no repped. Yeah, you got no repped at 4 1RM calf raise. You know, the whole world's against you, not just the people in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's amazing. Like, I, you know, I just can't imagine traveling through this world feeling wronged by everybody. But you know what? How, I mean, Chris, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Yeah, me neither. And no more dirty looks. At Enough about us. <laughs> and I want you to apologize for being sorry. <laughs> Enough about us. And our safe space. Let's get on to our podcast episode, our special guest. We have Sue Falsoni, who is the owner at Structure and Function Education, as well as a storied, has a little storied background of getting into this kind of rehab to performance pipeline. Right. Mm-hmm. So super like-minded introduced through one of our block one coaches. And she's going to share with you all sorts of shit that you never knew about the rehab process and really the glaring gaps that sadly a lot of people aren't addressing just because they're not aware of. Yeah. And mission with her new book, bridging the gap, get the athletes back to full speed and ready to play again. It's amazing. All right, people ready, set, go, go. Boating. Yeah, Sue, thanks for hopping on the show. I mean, I guess we, we just jump right into it, and we're rolling. And I heard that uh, the, the fellows got to meet you last week at the, the HPO Summit, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was that super fun. That is correct. At beautiful Fort Bragg, Fayetteville, <laughs> North Carolina, our favorite place to visit. <laughs> yeah, it was really uh, it was fun, really fun. Um, is, this, is this just an audio recording, or is it visual? Uh, cheers, cheers. No. Audio. <laughs> it's audio. I mean, uh, you know, I'm a little upset that we're not drinking rosé. We can change that. <laughs> well, it's rosé time in Arizona. Ah, <laughs> uh, fair enough. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> Is it ever a bad time to drink rosé? <laughs> no. All day, rosé all day. Like, first all thing day. in the morning after drinking a whole bunch of rosé the day before, <laughs> I've had a bad experience with a little bit of rosé. But uh, now that rosé comes in cans... It kind of makes you feel like a like a tough guy drinking rosé. Uh, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you can just sort of yeah drink it like it's a beer, but it's really rosé. Uh, really my only bad experience came from drinking sangria in the sun in Florida. We were in Clearwater and uh, we're sort of drinking sangria in the sun, and uh, I don't think I've ever been that drunk in my life. Yeah. Yeah. That can that can get you. It sneaks up on you. Which is interesting because that's just like normal in Florida, where I lived in Clearwater. People were just hammered all the time. 
I've had one bad sangria experience. It was real bad. I think I've told you on the radio, listeners, I couldn't tell you what episode where my now wife was sticking up for me for expelling sangria out of the car window. She's like, he's not vomiting. He's spitting. He's just spitting. And Hensman was DD and just laughing her ass off. Where was this at? It was coming home from Elliot Oliver's house on a Halloween party. Oh. Yeah, ha- Sangria Halloween. That's it. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Halloween. You gotta love that. Uh, oh, what an idiot. What a uh, moron. Well, enough about sangria nightmares, or I guess dreams come true. So why don't, uh, why don't you give uh, our listeners a little bit of an intro about you? Uh, what are you up to? How'd you get to what you're doing now? And, um, and then let's see where that takes the conversation. Sure. Um, let's see. I started off in PT school. I'm from Buffalo, New York. I went to PT school at Damon College, and it was an undergraduate degree at the time, which shows my age. Um, and then moved down to North Carolina, started working at an outpatient clinic there. Um, I did not enjoy outpatient orthopedics whatsoever. I decided to potentially go into sport. I was trying to figure out how I wanted to specialize in PT and found a program at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, that um, allowed you to get your master of science in human movement with a specialization in sports medicine. So I did that and was able to satisfy all the requirements for athletic training. So I did my athletic training degree second. Um, during that time I got my CSCS and, you know, of course did some personal training during school in order to, um, kind of get a little bit of cash. So kind of started the personal training thing and then moved out West and randomly met Mark Verstegen, uh, after reading an article about where Nomar Garcia Parra was training. So totally cold called, um, Mark at athletes performance and, um, walked in and Brandon Marcello was there and he took me around and introduced me to everybody and. Um, I just started kind of volunteering there a couple days a week. And um, that sort of turned into me spending more and more time there. And I think by September, Mark realized I wasn't going to go away. So he offered me a job by the end of summer. And so I ended up working for Athletes Performance, which is now known as Exos, for about 13 years. Left there as a vice president in 2014, I believe. Um, And during my time there, I had the opportunity to work with the LA Dodgers and so started off as a consultant. And that role sort of grew um, until I became the head athletic trainer for the LA Dodgers. And so, um, yeah, being vice president of a really large company and head athletic trainer for Major League Baseball is not two jobs you should have at the same time. So uh, quit both of those positions, thought I committed career suicide, thought I would never get another job again. Um, Took a year off, did my yoga teacher training. Um, became very Zen and then um, took a job with us men's national team for soccer, became their head athletic trainer and had a sport performance, which was fun. Did that for a little bit um, and then left there and started uh, teaching. And so had the opportunity to do some dry needling teaching for, um, for another company, a guy that I trained with. And then a couple years ago, had the opportunity to create my own education company called structure and function education. And um, that's really a dry needling company, uh, education company, today, but we're moving into a new um, space, which is great. I wrote a book last year called Bridging the Gap from Rehab to Performance. And so we've got a lot of education surrounding that book now, which we'll be moving over to the structure and function education site. So um, that was always sort of the goal was to create an education company, not necessarily a dry needling education company. So really looking forward to kind of um, getting back into that 
um, more education and those concepts of bridging the gap from rehab to performance. And then um, on top of all that, I still have um, a clinical practice. So I have a concierge practice where I treat professional athletes and consult with or professional organizations throughout the country. And so um, I travel to my patients and go see them. So I treat weekly now. I don't treat daily, but I definitely treat weekly, which is nice. Um, and then also I'm an associate professor in the athletic training programs at AT Still University. So um, when I hear myself say all that, I realize I have a working problem. So what years were you at, the, uh, at Athletes Performance in LA? Yeah, um, I was actually I was based in Phoenix and I oversaw all the physical therapy for under all facets. So um, education and military and corporate wellness and our facilities. And so I was there from 01 to 14. Yeah, I, I trained at uh, Athletes Performance in Carson when I played uh, for the Eagles and then the Chiefs. So I was there, yeah. I want to say like 03, 04, 05, 06. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure our paths crossed back yeah. then, no uh, doubt. The uh, the head ankle taper was uh, Asian dude. What was his name? Oh, Omi. Omi. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then and then the the, the guy who was the GM uh, was kind of a taller dude with brown Charlie. hair. What was his name? Charlie. Yeah, I think it was Charlie. That's right. So it's been a couple years, but yeah, uh, yeah, I trained out there right. for a number of years. So it was it was a cool environment. Yeah, yeah, it was a it was a really fun environment, and I just loved the blending of, you know, the the strength coaches with the physical therapists and athletic trainers, and we all just sort of worked in one space. And the nutritionists were always there, and so really that's sort of where, um, you know, the more I hung out with strength coaches, was the better clinician I became. Like I was a terrible clinician before I started hanging out with strength coaches. I realized, you know, everything was three sets of ten, and um, you know, super boring. So starting to work at AP back in '01. Um, and working with guys like Luke Richardson and Daryl Leto and, and Brandon Marcello and, and uh, Roger Scharnhorst and, and Mark, of course, for Stegen, and just learning how to progress load and speed of movement um, on healing tissue um, really just sort of elevated my practice. So it was a really cool environment to be in. And this is a big thing. So we have a few PT coaches that we work closely with as a couple of our block ones. And you know one, Matt Zanis, who introduced us and showed me your book, Bridging the Gap. And I, it's it's an amazing piece that I'm continuing to work through. But at the same time, that component of getting someone from rehab, right? They they go to their one, two, three sessions or continue to work with ATCs in a college experience. But then the expectation to go into week six and be full speed, it is a completely misunderstood thing from a, a sport coach's, even an athlete's perspective. So I'm really digging this book and that that mission to really educate and empower athletic trainers and strength coaches. I, I'm looking at it from a strength coach perspective. So, I mean, is this a, a culmination of, of your, your life's work or was this something that you've been implementing the last some odd years with all your athletes? Yeah, it's definitely been a work in progress. I mean, when I, when I was at athletes performance, like that is just how we operated. You know, we left our letters at the door and we put the patient first and we put the athlete or the client first, right? Those words are all sort of interchangeable for me. And, and to really learn how to work together as a team, put the athlete at the center and everybody brought something different to the table. And so, um, really sort of refining those 
those details, right? Because everybody, anytime anybody gets injured and then has to go back to the field, we've all been doing bridging the gap from rehab to performance, right? For the majority of our career. And so really, what does that mean? And what are all the steps that it takes to get there and to get someone from table to field? Um, there's a lot of different things that obviously go into play. And if you skip any of them, right? If you ignore, um, um, tissue healing properties. If you ignore, um, looking at cause versus source of the injury, if you ignore load and speed of movement, and if you ignore the vestibular system and visual system, all of these things are going to come into play and they're going to have a decrease in their performance when they return. So ideally people return from a rehab assignment, bigger, faster, stronger than they were before, right? Because now we have had the opportunity to really work on some of their maybe inefficiencies might not be the right word, but to, to work on some of those things that, that maybe they hadn't had time to work on before. And so, yeah, I think it, it's sort of both, right? It's a culmination, I think, of my life's work and my experiences and people who um, I've been fortunate enough to be surrounded by. Um, and then really just kind of putting down pen to paper, right? If you've ever written a book, it is one of the most difficult things, if not the most difficult thing I've ever done professionally, um, because it makes you fill in the blanks. It makes you write out all the details and, and things that you sort of take for granted during some of the editing processes, you know, the editor is like, that doesn't make any sense. You know, like, oh, I've got to provide more detail. And so it just keeps you really, really honest with your steps and with your progressions and with your systems. And so, um, yeah, the book, the book was really a, um, it was a really interesting exercise for me. One that was really, really difficult. Um, and I'm glad it's done, but definitely a, a fun process for sure. So I guess in your experiences, you, you know, I, there's some common injuries where the rubber meets the road, whether it's ankles or knees with athletes, right? Did you find that in applying the same process, certain athletes didn't respond the same way as others, let's say through that road to recovery? Yeah, for sure. I think we always have to remember that the ankle or the knee is attached to a human. And while we have a very general understanding of human physiology and pathophysiology and how tissue heals, and we know that a ligament heals differently than a tendon and a tendon heals differently than muscle and, and versus bone, right? So bottom line, we have to respect tissue healing processes um, for sure. And then what we have to do is, is attach that to the human. So what other comorbidities do they have? What other, um, things that might disrupt that physiology, that physiological process that are sort of going to impact the physiological process specifically, and then attach it to the psychological aspect of what's going on, what's going on with their job, what's their social support. Um, what is, you know, how do they fit within their community? Um, is it a, a career, potentially a career ending injury, like all the psychological things that go along. And then all of those things impact the physiology, right? So we start off with basic fundamental human physiology, but then we have to remember that it's attached to a human that has a lot of different processes. So I think anytime that you have people not responding very well, um, you kind of have to look at some of those other things. It's not just about physiology. It's about some of these other things as well. And you dive in into this in the book, and this is a term that I keep seeing more and more in this industry is the biopsychosocial model. And you provided different, many different perspectives, one from the performance coach, one from the, uh, the athletic, the rehab point of view. So kind of, I guess, dive further into that biopsychosocial and why understanding the importance of athlete, strength coach, and sport coach point of view is extremely important for progress back to full speed. Yeah, I, um, I you know, every injury. So no matter what happens, we have an injury, 
and we have in, an inflammatory process that occurs. So we know that if I cut myself or sprain my ankle or whatever it may be, there's a physiological and chemical cascade that occurs in the area. So we know that there's histamine, bradykinin, substance P, GRP, all these CGRP, all these things that create a vasodilation that try to help bring nutrients into the area. Right? We know there's macrophages that try to clean up any debris or bacteria, um, interstitial, the epithelial layer of the, of the capillaries shrink up. And so interstitial fluid goes into spaces that it wasn't meant to be. And that's a good thing because it pushes against the lymph system and it blocks, it blocks bacteria from getting out of the area. So that's the body's way of containing an injury. And so we don't necessarily want to stop that inflammatory process, but we want to move to resolution as quickly as we can. And so once we kind of get through that inflammatory phase, um, we move to the subacute and chronic phases. So along with that chemical stuff, we have nociceptive stimulation. So we know that there's different nerve fibers and things like A delta fiber, C fibers, those things are what transmit pain. So when you slam your finger in the door, you get that immediate sharp awful pain and that's an a delta fiber stimulation and then it sort of goes into this dull achy throbbing sort of type pain and then that's your c fibers right and so we know that that inflammation or that information gets transmitted to the central nervous system at different rates and so then the central nervous system has to process what that pain means and it always goes to the limbic system it goes to the thalamus the hypothalamus and so every injury you have, it just sort of gets filed in your, in your brains and your limbic system's little memory bank. And every emotion, every situation that is associated with that injury gets filed. So there's always an emotional attachment to injury. And then it goes up to the brain, right? It goes up to the cortex. And that's where we have an opinion about our pain. How much does this pain really impact my life? Not necessarily physically, but just overall. Am I going to be really depressed about it? Am I going to try to overcome it, right? Like that, that's our opinion about our pain. So the, the way we cognate pain and the way that we our memories that are associated with every injury are completely individualized, which is why the biopsychosocial model is really about the biology of it, right? So it's the physiology of it and the inflammatory process and the nociceptive stimulation, but then the psych psychological part of it is that cognition of pain and our limbic system and our memories. So that's the biopsycho part of it. And then the social aspect of it, right? We all know, and everyone's kind of had that time in their life where they felt like, man, I just have the best support system in the world, right? I've got tons of friends. I got tons of family around me. And then there's been those times in your life where you feel like you were totally alone and that you didn't have any support. And those are very different um, have, have a really different impacts on your life, right? So it's not just about, the biology of it. It's just not about how you're processing this information in your own brain, but it's what's the message about that's being said to you or, or that's around you, right? How's your social system supporting you? And when we look at the literature, you know, the athletic trainer, the PT, the strength coach and the skill coach all have different social impacts on an injury. So like one of the biggest things that, that a skill coach can do to help somebody through injury is to just keep that person engaged. Right. So how many times does somebody get injured and the coach is like, I don't want to see them, get him out of my sight until he's ready to come back to play. Well, that's really impactful from a social standpoint, and from a psychological standpoint. So one of the best things that a skill coach can do is, is, is keep the person engaged in the team activities and maybe seek support for like someone who's already gone through this injury. Right. Um, and so that way the person can see that there's, that there is light to the other end. There's can be a potential good outcome. One of the biggest things that a strength coach can provide, um, and I'm happy that I, the research is all in, in, in the book. If you ever want to like read the research article associated with this stuff, it, it's all documented. So some of the things that the athletes say that the strength coach really provides, um, are realistic, um, realistic listening. So listening, um, 
with real expectations and social support and, and listening without offering advice. That's, that was a huge thing. So listening without offering advice, meaning that people who are injured just want someone to listen to them and hear them out and then keeping things real. Like, Hey, this is not a catastrophic injury or, Hey, you know what? This might be career ending and that's going to be okay. Cause there's all these other things, right? The athletes just want you to be real with them. Um, and then variety was a huge thing when it comes to athletic trainers. And when it comes to physical therapists, providing variety within the rehab program, that was super important for people. And the other thing that from a strength coach standpoint, one of the things that they said was super helpful was, um, um, making sure that, that the strength coach acknowledged that the person was working hard during rehab. And I think that's really important from a strength and conditioning standpoint, because sometimes we can think, uh, you know, oh, well, if they're not lifting really heavy or they're not in team activities or they're not doing everything that they're doing in the weight room, maybe they're not working really hard. And so they often kind of get punished, right? Like, oh, well, you have to go ride the bike as hard as possible for an hour because you're not able to lift. And it's like, it kind of becomes this punishment versus, Hey, you're working hard. You're just working hard in a different way. So when we start to really look at, at the psychological support and the social support that, that all of these different roles of healthcare providers and strength coaches and skills coaches provide athletes, um, it, it really just kind of starts to shift the conversation from not just biology, but to the psychology and the social support as well. Um, and, and all three components are really important. How do you avoid, uh, coaches? Cause I mean, um, as a professional athlete, there's this idea that if you get hurt, uh, the coach tends to treat you like it's your fault mm-hmm. and you get into this weird, like, uh, they get into like a strange passive aggressive. And like, uh, when I was, you know, when I ruptured my patellar tendon with the Eagles, my rookie year, uh, I wasn't allowed to be around the team. So I had to come right. in after they went to meetings, leave before they went and like go outside and sit in your car. And, uh, they treat you like, honestly, like it's your fault that you've somehow got hurt doing this job. And, right. um, and, and you're contagious because if you're yeah. around, you're going to give the patella tendon rupture to everybody well, else. It, it, and, and it's such a weird thing. You're like, man, I was doing this job. I got hurt on the field doing the job that you guys needed me to do. And somehow this is my fault. It's a, it's right. such a weird thing, man. And I just wonder if it's like um, just like the small minded nature of the coach. Um, yeah. I think that, uh, I mean, uh, honestly, like some of the, the most uh, emotionally and mentally repressed human beings on the planet. I mean, just coaches are strange, especially professional coaches. I mean, they are like one track minded. Uh, how do you guys deal with that? Like, how do you get in and battle that where you know that the coach is going to treat the athlete like that? And the, and the athlete, it, you know, usually being a fairly young guy, I've never been hurt very often. Um, and then he all of a sudden like feels like he's, you know, got like lice or something vulnerable. Yeah. And, and like, you know, and you're like trying to get him back and get him into an active situation. And all of a sudden he gets pissed because everybody's treating him like he's, you know, like a leper. And, uh, I just wonder like as a trainer and as a coach where like you guys are in this weird thing, cause, um, you know, your responsibility is to get the guy back as quick as possible, make sure he's healthy, but you also work for the, you know, for the GM and the coach. I mean, I remember, uh, injuries, the doc would evaluate uh, the player and then he would go in the office and talk to the head coach before he came out and gave the evaluation and uh, the prognosis. And so I wonder, like, I always wondered, how does the, uh, how does the trainer, how does the person who, you know, I mean, um, you know, the do no harm kind of fit into that where you have to kind of wear dual roles. It, it is. It's really difficult when you work for an organization, bottom line, the organization pays your paycheck, right? And you're responsible to the organization to communicate what's going on with the player. At the same time, as a medical professional, you are 100% ethically bound to provide the proper care to that patient. And so it is absolutely a, a conflict of interest and a duality that is really difficult to navigate and to manage. Um, and 
and you, and you do, you, you kind of have to, as, as that clinician, you, it's really difficult to walk that line and to be loyal to both people. I felt like as a healthcare professional, my number one priority was always my patient and always the, the athlete that I was working with. And I was always very honest with what I had to report. Um, because you guys know, right, there's certain things we have to report. And I never wanted to make it seem like I was saying one thing to one group of people and, some, and something, one thing to something else. So it was like, hey, you know, I've got to tell the coach and the GM about this, or, you know, how do you want me to present this? And that was always a conversation I had with the athletes so that they felt like they had control over the information that was being presented, even though they knew, right? Like I was just very upfront and honest, like, hey, I've got to present this information. But I made them part of that process. Is it different with a baseball where there's some guaranteed contracts opposed from the NFL where, you know, it's like every man for himself and, uh, you know, so much shady stuff happens? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I've spent a little bit of time in season NFL and, and a lot of time in, in, in season Major League Baseball. And, and it is different, right? Those guaranteed contracts make a huge, huge difference. Um, and that's just the unfortunate aspect of the game. Um, and, and for people to think that those contracts don't play a role, they absolutely oh, you know, play uh, a role. <laughs> the stories I could tell you, I mean, I uh, like one of the guys we uh, was one of our young guys had a uh, he had an upper, uh, upper ankle sprain and it was like a, a pretty severe. It was a tear. And uh, they were, you'll be fine, you'll be fine, just trying to get them out on the field. So for warm-up and for pregame in the beginning of the game, because if they can get you on field, they can cut you, they can't cut you when you're hurt. And I remember, like, seeing this happen and the way they were pushing him. And uh, I ended up giving this dude a little bit of veteran advice where I'm like, man, if you walk off this field, they're going to cut you and you're going to be done. And there's nothing, you're gonna, nobody's going to help you. So go down on the field. And he actually went down in pregame. And uh, they ended up having to give him an injury settlement, thank God. And they were pissed at me for, like, a whole year about it. And, uh, you know, and so, oh yeah, no, they were still better at me. I think that's why I got into a contract fight with them. And I just remember thinking like, um, like these are young dudes. Uh, they're, you know, not very sophisticated, not to say they're not smart, not educated, but like not very sophisticated in like this kind of cutthroat business. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's such a weird, like I, I could never figure out like, um, and, and I always was good friends with our strength coaches and our trainers. And I always thought, man, like, how do you guys like this dual role where you're trying to get guys ready, but like, you know, inside information and like, how do you wear that? And it's, uh, I wouldn't want to do that job. So I'm yeah, always amazed it, when people do it. Definitely. I would really just try hard to stay out of that stuff. Right. Cause there were always that, those situations I learned really quickly, because, you know, in baseball, everything's a puzzle. And so there's always, right, if someone goes down at the major league level and someone has to come up from AAA, which means someone has to go up from AA, which means someone has to go up from single A, right? And then same thing back down when someone comes back into play. So if you bring up a guy who's doing amazing, right, all of a sudden no one wants the injured guy back because the guy that just came up is doing awesome. So, you know, you get a call from the GM that says like, oh, you know, or, or from anybody really, hey, you know, can we kind of slow this guy's rehab down and, you know, and then that guy goes over and then all of a sudden it's like, Hey, when's so-and-so going to be back? Right. So it's like <laughs> by the day it's like, Oh, slow play this guy. And can, how fast can you get him back? So I just learned really quickly to, to be the one that keeps the cool head. Look at, here's the physiology. Here's what we have to do. Here's when he's going to be ready. It might be two days before what I say. It might be two days after what I say, but 
it is what it is. Despite the contract, despite how good the guy who's replacing him, none of that has a bearing on his physiology and his ability to heal. So I learned really quickly to just be the cool head in the room and just define it. It is what it is. And same thing for the player, right? Because the player is just as much, um, just as much need and want and desire to get back. Or at the same time, the player's like, oh, that guy's doing really good. Um, I would rather be hurt than suck, right? Because if I'm not hurt anymore and I get to come off the DL and they send me down instead of this guy, well, now all of a sudden I suck and it's much better to be hurt than suck. So, you know, so there's all of these different psychological things at, at play going on. And so I just learned really early on, be the cool head, stay objective, try to keep your emotion out of it. Um, and, and it just is what it is. The contracts, all of that stuff works, it's, works itself out. And it's just not my responsibility. My responsibility is to the patient, do no harm, tissue heal, and be the cool head in the room. And, and that, that's, that's easier said than done, no doubt. But it is difficult. So, Sue, do you yourself have a, a background of athletics? Coming up? Oh, my gosh. I'm a horrible, horrible athlete. I, um, I spent, you're going to make fun of me because everyone makes fun of me. But I did synchronized swimming nice. from ages 7 to 14. So those are, I like <laughs> and I was a pretty good though, that isn't um, as easy as it looks. No, I, uh, <laughs> I went to college with two girls that were synchronized swimmers and, uh, their training was off the charts. Like, yeah. uh, like I've never seen anybody like any, like they were, uh, I've never like crazy people. How do you <laughs> so. fall into that sport where they're like the swim coach was like, no, just go over there. And y'all just got into a dance routine or well, no, I always wondered how they grade that. Like, how are the judges sitting up there, like grading this whole thing? Do they have like, just got to really be passionate. Yeah. It's like gymnastics. Yeah. Symmetry. But, uh, Symmetry. If you notice but, one thing off, nah, but at least with gymnastics, you can see it happen. I mean, the judges are, are the judges in the water with goggles on? No, but they do have, they do have some cameras so they can see your technique underwater. Yeah. Oh, really? No, I did not know. I mean, yeah, obviously John, everyone knows that. <laughs> So that was so that was your primary athletic endeavor as a as a yeah. So I mean, I was a pretty good synchronized swimmer. I know I was only like ten at the time, but um, you know, I seven to fourteen is obviously a really formidable age yeah. for balance and eye and hand coordination and fundamental strength, right? And so because I was in the water during that time, I developed zero fast twitch muscle fibers. Like I don't think I have a fast twitch muscle fiber in my body. Um, and I just, I, I just am not good with eye hand coordination, balance, just in general coordination at, at all. And so, um, yeah, I, I really kind of missed out on some fundamental athletic movement. So when I got to high school and I started doing other things, I, I ran track and field Well, I was super slow. Um, so I wasn't, didn't do any of the sprints and I wasn't, didn't have the best endurance in the world because pool endurance is totally different than land endurance. So I couldn't really do any of those events. So then I started doing the field stuff and I wasn't strong enough to throw anything. So I started doing high jump, let my knees drop, broke my nose in like practice number two. So that was done with, with field stuff. So I started playing soccer, right? And I got most improved player my first year of soccer. So that just goes to show how bad I was. Um, and so, so yeah, when I kind of started getting into the coaching thing, Luke Richardson who um, was with the Broncos for a long time during coach. He was with, uh, with athletes performance for forever. And then he went to the Broncos and or actually all the tattoos. Uh, Is that yeah. the cat with all the tattoos? Yeah. I met him years yeah. ago. Yeah, for sure. And so Luke and I go way back and um, 
he kind of, you know, he was one of the guys that took me under his wing. He was, you know, I think I was like employee number seven at athletes performance and Luke was like number four or five. And so he just told me right out of the gate, he's like, look at, here's what you need to do to be a coach. You need to do every exercise. You, you need to do everything with the bar. He's like, just be able to move the bar. So that was always my strength goal. Although I got stronger than that at different times, depending on the exercise, he's like, you just got to move the bar and you got to be able to do three reps to one side of every movement. So I got really, really good at always demonstrating fundamental athletic movement, three repetitions to one side, just enough to get by. Right. And so even now when I coach, like you'll see me, I'll do three reps to one side, I'll demonstrate something. And then I kind of walk back and then I do three reps back you know, in the same direction and kind of walk back. Cause if you ask me to do any movement like to the right or like five, six, seven reps, it's just going to break down. So <laughs> Andy the key to coaching he's like this is all you need to do because <laughs> I really I mean I lost out on so many fundamental athletic abilities just by being in the water so much from 7 to 14. Yeah and I ask because a lot of the you know a lot of the accomplished coaches or trainers that come onto the show and talk about their story tends to be steeped in like this youth athletic performance and they either succeed and find themselves or there. you've or, never met any athletic trainers have you no no or a big injury so that's another right. thing and athletic trainers they their relationship with their atc or physical therapist led them down this path so mm -hmm. they had, okay. exactly. so i was just curious if any of that fell in there if, and if that wasn't it what i guess why go this route was it just easy for you in college no, the, the sport thing was, was never easy. I mean, when I first did, went to college, I really thought I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. Um, and then I realized having an undergraduate biology degree was a really bad idea. So I thought, well, I'll do PT because it was an undergraduate degree at the time. When I started getting into PT because um, I did have a hamstring injury. And so I went to PT. So I thought, all right, I'll do this. This will be cool. And then I did that. And then when I got out and, and became a physical therapist and I was an outpatient ortho, the, the place I worked at was amazing. I met amazing people that are my friends to this day. And I, I had great patients, but it was a lot of car accidents. It was a lot of workman's comp. It was a lot of people suing each other. And people were either getting better or not getting better, not because of my interventions, but because of the status of their lawsuit. And so that got super frustrating. So I realized pretty quickly that if I wanted to be good, um, or, or kind of have like a different career path, I needed to specialize. So my first gig was women's health. And I lasted about one day in women's health and like doing internal examination. I was like, this is not for me doing internal examinations and pelvic floor stuff. So that lasted about a day. Then I thought, all right, I'm going to do this pediatric thing and maybe specialize in, in pediatric orthopedics. And you know, that lasted a few months. And when you've got kids who are six, seven, eight years old with external fixators because they've broken their leg and they're crying and you're, I'm like, oh, this is not for me. These little kids that have these awful, terrible injuries. So I thought, all right, sports, this is my last thing. Let me give this, I mean, I've always loved sports and I was a fan of sports. Um, and I always told my mom, I wanted to work for the Buffalo Bills. That was always like my, my thing that I, for minute one was always telling her I wanted to work for the Buffalo Bills. So I thought, all right, let me try the sports med thing. And so that, that dual program I did at UNC, they took one person and, um, I thought, all right, if I don't, if I get this sports medicine is, is just the way my life is supposed to go. If I don't get it, I'm going back to fashion design. And, and I was looking at FIT in New York and I thought I'm going to abandon this whole thing. I've made a huge mistake with this physical therapy thing. Um, and yeah, I'm going to do fashion design. And so, but I went through all the interviews at UNC and I, like multiple programs and yeah. And I somehow got the spot. And so sports medicine. That's so that crazy. Tech's almost that. got back yeah. into fashion design too. Well, Marymount University, it is a big fashion school. Yeah. I swear. 
Yeah, so that's the. I mean, with as is. much fashion as you have. Uh, have you seen my boat shoes? <laughs> I know. Usually I have something on that's Nike at all times. So people are like, really? Fashion design? You don't seem like well, you're fashion Well, Sue, Tex wears Kids. Yeah, for, you, for, so. you, for your information and, of course, oh, and for well, six also, listeners. My, my shoe is duct taped together right now. <laughs> well, it's because your Keds fell apart. If you wore Vans and not Keds. These are Vans. No, they're, they're little kids' Keds. I think they're called Let's. <laughs> not like they're knockoff Keds you get at Costco. <laughs> I'm surprised you're not wearing the, uh, the rubber shoes at Costco oh, that, uh, that Cash wears. Just because they're Costco brand, it's the worst thing ever. John, how would you describe <laughs> Texas boat shoes that he... In uh, effort, seriously wore out like as like check out these new I shoes. I, I, couldn't, say I, 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 didn't say I couldn't believe it because because everybody came over to me and they're like, "What's going on with Texas shoes?" Is I don't think us? that happened. I, I was uh, dude. I'm not kidding you. Uh, everybody and, I, and when I mean everybody, I don't mean Harry Shaw. And these are the they're the black <laughs> shoes, right? Yeah, yeah, the ones where like you can see his toenail, like they're like yeah. cut out on the front, so you can see his painted toenails. So like <laughs> they're not cut out. But what do you call the part of a shoe? That the tongue, like the, the, the tongue. tongue area, the top of the top of Texas foot, like where you would expect a pair of Vans to cover up to like the ankle crease. Yeah. You know, maybe there's some fancy physiology terms for this, <laughs> but the whole top bone like arch of his foot was exposed as if it were like a tiny slipper. It was with like <laughs> two, two eyelets for laces in like this perfectly tied bow. Do, do you remember in uh, um, when Dave Chappelle was going through the whole uh, Prince thing where they played basketball and they came out and they're like they're wearing their their outfits and he's yeah. like shirts oh, versus blouses and uh, he's like they didn't get those he goes they, he goes they got offended by the blouses coming like they got those shoes they didn't know where they got those shirts they got them in a woman's store kind of like Texas <laughs> shoes he knows that though he didn't sit by those at a men's store. They're women's shoes. Got them online, and they're great. <laughs> I I'm going to continue to wear them. <laughs> I'm going to continue to wear them. They're just like, but the problem, I'm going to go into it, is like the tongue is way too low. Well, like, well, there's yeah. a lot of top of the foot showing, but and the, like that's kind of like a, a feminine thing. I've never seen a dude with that much top of the foot well, showing. Well, and, and what makes it look weird is that his feet are kind of like short and square so yeah, they almost look they like legos long. yes lego feet. it's just kind of <laughs> weird i mean first band is off baby tex is just getting oh, oh i'm uh, standing by the shoes they're amazing uh, you know what you needed with that like a deep v like now, a real db now we're talking john pair white jeans and a deep v and those oh, shoes that's a vegas outfit i'm saying I'm, I'm not saying that you know like it's beyond you to wear it hey, but i mean chest, chest hair's back well, I mean, dude, we have a fashion fashionista in, in uh, um, Sue in Sue on the on the podcast. I mean, she could probably yeah. like accessorize you and get you ready. Ooh, accessorize tax. <laughs> oh god part two part two of the podcast oh sue it's just uh like we got to send you a pic we'll text you a picture of those shoes they're, they're awful awesome i can't wait to see them oh. i can't wait to see them she, send you, me a text. yeah like as soon as i saw them all i could think of was charlie murphy being like why are you upset you know where you got those shoes and it wasn't a man store <laughs> the shoes got are lovely them <laughs> a tremendous choice. You want to get us back on track? You think it's kind of like those this? cowboy boot flip flops that you had. <laughs> those, those are great too. Uh, so now those I'd like to see. Uh, from your HBO uh, roundtable, I took a, I took a lot of notes. I had a great time uh, listening to you, K Star, and the gentleman from Nashville. You introduced Mike. me, Mike, and um, I guess one of Wait. the discussions was a general concern versus an appropriate concern. 
So this was a great note that I took, and each, all three of you had your own take on it. So I see some connection back to our previous conversation, but kind of, I guess, go into that general versus the appropriate concern when speaking to your athlete. Yeah, I was trying to think about what context we, we were sort of talking about that in. And, and what I, I think maybe we were talking about is, is as people are reha- rehabilitating and, and they're coming back from their sport, there, there's always sort of a concern about re-injury. And, and I think that a lot of times we can institute as strength coaches, as physical therapists, as athletic trainers, and as physicians, we can institute like a fear avoidance pattern in our patients. So I think people with back pain or ACL tears, I think is the example we were using um, at the HPO summit. So we were, we were saying how um, people who have an ACL tear, just the recurrence rate can be so high um, because oftentimes they are fearful to go back to their sport, right? Or if someone has back pain, I mean, we can put a fear avoidance behavior in our patient in a heartbeat by just telling them, okay, you always have to have your shoulders in line with your hips, right? I never want you to rotate your back. You need to keep your back perfectly straight, bend at your knees, bend at your hips. And it's like, okay, yeah, if you're lifting something super heavy, but the spine is 24 movable bones. Like if your spine's not meant to move, then I'm it would have been one big long bone, right? But it's 24 movable parts with lots of different joints to it. If there's one thing that's supposed to happen, your spine is supposed to move. It's not supposed to move as a compensatory thing for something that your hips and your shoulders can't do. And you're not supposed to flex and load it under and just load it under a ton of weight. So there's an appropriate time to move. There's an appropriate time to be stable. And I think same thing at the knee. And again, we were using that example of of ACL tears. And so the way we communicate to our patients can really create this fear avoidance behavior and make them fearful to move. And so people can be really afraid to go back to their sport. And I think that's a very appropriate concern at the same time, right? Like there, the, the risk of re-injury is what it is, but if we um, restore range of motion, we decrease pain, we have fundamental strength, we restore the ability to move that, that strength is known as power, if they can express that fun and fundamental athletic movement, and they can do that at varying loads and speeds, and they can transition from all these different movements to all these other ones, and we've prepared them and made them feel comfortable, we've increased their intensity by putting them in simulated game situations, we've randomized their, their, um, their practice, so it's not always like a pre-programmed movement, we've made them be reactive, right, we've, we've checked off all of these boxes, so that way, and then we just give it time, right? At the end of the day, we know physiology of a ligament is going to take X amount of time. And, and it's just going to take, there's a reason why in my career of the last 23 years, we went from, it took one year to get an ACL, uh, a person with an ACL tear back on the field. Then it was this accelerated rehab and we were getting people back within three months, which was absolutely ridiculous because eight to 12 weeks is, is that time period where that ligament is transitioning to properties of a tendon and is absolutely at its weakest. So for us to return somebody at three months post-op ACL repair was like one of the dumbest things that we ever did. And so now we're looking back and that spectrum is changing back, right? We're looking at 12 to 18 months before someone returns from an ACL tear. Why? Because it's just the physiologic time that it takes to heal. Are you talking about like a patellar tendon or are you talking about like allograph or? Uh, yeah, is usually it, is a patella he, tendon. You From know, an uh, standpoint, that's going to be a gold standard. When you start getting in, you know, and I don't really do post-op rehab very often anymore. Sure. So I'm probably speaking out of my wheelhouse a tad. But when you start using allograph stuff or you start using hamstring tendons, right, all of these things change. Um, but but not by a ton, right? It just, bottom line, it takes a year to get someone back from ACL tear. 
takes about a year to get someone back from a UCL tear in the elbow. It just does, right? Some people have freakish physiology. Maybe they can get back in 10 months. Some people have to slow play it. They get back in 14 months. It, it just is what it is. You know, I, I uh, ruptured my patellar tendon of uh, the season opener and I started that next season opener and went through training camp and did everything. And like, even on my ACL, when I tore it, they had me back, like pushing me, like, you know, like almost like, uh, um, you know, I think at like six months not doing spring ball and then making it feel like it was my fault. And like, it's such a, it's such a deal where, uh, you know, and like, cause so much of it's variable that which I'm stoked now that like, they actually have some clinical data to be like, Hey, this is how long it takes. So it almost yeah. kind of like teaches the sport coach, like, Hey, this is how long, like you can't change the physiology where before it was like, if you were tougher, you'd be able to do this. Absolutely. And, and if you were an athlete during that accelerated ACL rehab time, it, it just sucked for you because yeah, if you didn't get back in three months, it was like, well, you don't work very hard. You're and not tendonitis tough. and yeah. like the tendonitis from cutting up, uh, like cutting up the patellar tendon and taking that middle third. I remember the tendonitis was the worst part hands down. Absolutely. And, and there's evidence to show even years after taking that central portion that it's still not filled in with fantastic scar, right? Like even several years after it just takes time to load that tissue. And so, you know, that's why they did start exploring allografts and hamstring tendons and all that stuff. And, and so, yeah, we just have to go back to orthopedic basic science. Um, and we have to make sure that our patients understand the, the relative risk and, and the absolute risk of going back and that, yeah, there, there is absolutely always a risk, but, but we don't want to make it an unrealistic risk. And the way we frame our questions and how we how we address our patients, our communication is such a big deal. So like my patients with chronic pain or, or our patients who do have that, um, you know, issue that's been going on for 12 months or greater, you know, there's no time frame for when someone kind of becomes a chronic pain patient or, or what we call a nociplastic state of pain, right? When the central nervous system is misinterpreting the information that's coming from the periphery, that's called nociplastic state of pain. And so when people are in a nociplastic state of pain, that can happen after just a couple months or it can happen after a couple years, right? Or, or a year or whatever. But those people don't process pain the same way. And the way we communicate with those patients, if we ask them every day, hey, how are you feeling today? It's never going to be, I feel great, right? They've had pain for a year. Today's not the day they're not going to have pain. So keeping things really objective. Hey, how did you sleep last night? Did you eat breakfast? Oh, you didn't. We talk about eating breakfast, right? You got to eat. Oh, you didn't sleep last night. Oh, why didn't you? Were you on your phone? We've talked about sleep hygiene, right? You be up. So keeping things super objective, as opposed to saying, how do you feel? Because because a, a person who's been in pain for a year, they don't, they're not going to feel well today. Um, and so just sort of reframing some of our questions um, away from that sort of subjective concept of pain to really objective things like, Hey, you, you just walked in and you look great. Like you look like you're walking really well. Like, are you able to do stairs? So just keeping things really objective. So that way we don't drive our patients into a fear avoidance pain, be pain behavior, which I think we can easily do by constantly asking them, how do you feel? How do you feel? How do you feel? Yeah, this, that was almost one thing I backed into with athletes because of their, I guess, the negative talk they had, especially uh, Geo out in um, Australia. But she had ACL reconstructed. We're about a year out. And she kept on saying, my bad knee, my bad knee. And when I got the opportunity to work with the person, we, that was the first thing we addressed. Let's communicate about your new knee or just your strong knee. Do you know how you yeah, fix right. that, Tex? You have to rupture the tendon or the ligament in the other knee. So and, then then you go through, and then you go through the surgery is, is a second time. The, the, the good knee. And then you just <laughs> refer to everything as like my most recent 
or everything's that, fucked. That's the major pain approach. Do you remember that movie? <laughs> well, no. Uh, I was told years ago that if something hurts, hurt something else worse, and you'll forget about the first pain because your body can only process pain for one thing. Yeah, major pain. That when, condition and, pain modulation. Yeah. There's a whole pain theory around what? that condition. Oh, what yeah. is that called? <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then there's also the theory of uh, of um, like. Uh, People have different thresholds of pain. That's a really interesting one. Like where, uh, like, and and that's why like pain is so subjective. Like what somebody else would take painkillers and, you know, hey, this is the end of my life. Other people are kind of like, well, I didn't even notice that one. Like um, case in point, my dad uh, who passed away had pretty severe stomach cancer and liver cancer and was like stage four and took zero pain meds. When I'd ask him, I felt he'd be like, feel fine. Everything's good. And, uh, and then like uh, I had another family member that almost had the identical thing two years and uh, they basically put her on a morphine drip and put her in a coma because the pain was so severe she couldn't deal with it and ended up just slipping out and passing away on that one. And they talked yeah. about, like, this pain of the stomach and, like, stomach cancer, and Dr. Tom talked about it. My dad, no problem. What are you talking about? I would never take a painkiller. And I just remember, like, asking a doc, and they were like, this should be really painful for him. Um, and I'm like, he's, takes no, he's not taking any painkillers. And they're like, some people are just different, man. Everybody's wired different. You have to remember pain is perception. And like when they ask for like a pain scale of like one to 10, that was my favorite. Is it a 10 or a two? And you're like, dude, like, uh, like, you know, like, uh, is it so painful that you can't get out of bed? Like I just, you know, there has to be some other metrics, but yeah, man, pain's a really pretty fascinating thing. I can't imagine for your job, like trying to rehab people and they're like, it really hurts. And you're like, I had to do that his limb cut off and he wasn't very upset about it. So is that your pain or like where, where does it fit? Totally. Right. And you've got to just keep framing it into objective, objective things, right? Like, okay, I get that, that your knee hurts and that's an okay thing, right? Like I, I think when we give that expectation of, well, you know, you just had a total knee joint replacement or and again, this is not something I see, but like a total knee joint replacement is a really one of the most painful surgeries to kind of come back from. And so when, when people go in with the expectation of, oh, I have this new knee and then I'm not supposed to have any pain. Well, no, rehab is really, it can be painful and that's okay. We look for signs of inflammation. Is there redness? Is there swelling? Um, is there loss of function, right? Like what's going on? Is there heat coming off of the joint? Like these are all bad things that I don't want. I tolerate as much pain as you can tolerate. And I don't really care what that is, right? But but if you come back in tomorrow and there's more swelling or there's redness or there's heat or there's loss of range of motion or we have a, an objective finding that is now negative, those are things that I don't like, right? So trying to keep things super, super objective. But it, it's really tough, right? Because that's just a natural conversation opener, right? How many times does someone just walk into your house or you meet someone on the street and you know, in your Starbucks and you're like, hey, how you doing? You don't really know how to know how you're doing, how they're doing. They're a total stranger, right? But it's like, that's just how we greet each other. Hey, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? Good, good. Right. Have a good day. And everybody walks mean? away with their just coffee. Just asking strangers? Right? Just, yeah. Hey, how's, how's, your, how's your ankle? <laughs> well, actually, today. You actually, know, like you a patient would... walks in my office or, or I walk in the patient, I'm like, hey, how you feeling today? It's just a very natural conversation starter. So when people start to go down a really negative path and being super cognitively focused on their pain, you have, as a clinician and interventionist, have to be really focused to not take them down that path. Do you, do you think that um, there's like uh, other circumstances that make uh, people more negative? I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this, like a positive outlook on injury was by far like the, uh, I wish somebody could have told me that younger, like, 
lie to yourself to the point of like almost being a crazy person be like no everything feels great like that positive piece but i also wondered uh if like painkillers and some of like the opiates um you know that people tend to take to try to alleviate it end up being like one of the deciding factors for it like the longer they take the opiates the more negative they are because they're more nervous of the pain instead of kind of realizing pain's a function of this and that at some point you're going to have to face it a little bit and work through it yeah absolutely right we're we we kind of have have a little bit of like pain is negative right and i think that that we see that i've been studying a, a little bit of chinese medicine and and um you know, with needles and those sorts of things and going overseas and studying a little bit more Eastern medicine based type stuff. And if, if someone has a really strong response or it's painful, right? Like we don't never want anybody to be uncomfortable, but unfortunately in the rehab process, sometimes things are uncomfortable and that's okay. Again, if they're not associated with those cardinal signs of inflammation and, and, and whatnot. So it is, it's about, and that's why I like yoga so much. And I, and I do institute yoga constantly up so much with my patients and my athletes and whether I'm working with them from a performance standpoint or from a rehab standpoint, one of the reasons I love yoga, right? You get yourself in these contorted, ridiculous positions, but what you, what do you have to do? You have to breathe through it. And so yoga can teach us to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? So it's not about the crazy pose or it's not about doing something stupid. It's about being able to get into this crazy pose and breathe through it and keeping your mind calm because life is uncomfortable, right? Getting up in front of 50,000 people and trying to, to hit the game winning home run or drive in the winning run, like that's uncomfortable. So we need to become a little bit comfortable being uncomfortable. And, and that's really difficult for people to do. So I, I just try to have that realistic um, expectation that rehab is not going to be a pain-free process. Every day is not going to be, you know, um, wonderful. And, um, you know, it, it's going to be okay we're going to have our ups and downs, but, but we should be trending in the right way. You seem like pretty well-traveled in this circle of rehab. What was it that drew you to the, the dry needling as a, an area of focus? Yeah, I started dry needling about 10 years ago. Um, and I just thought it was kind of a cool thing to do. Right. And it was kind of at that time when it was, or was not within the scope of practice and, you know, yeah, we could do it. Um, and it wasn't really kind of being addressed at the state level. And so now since then, it's been really sort of addressed in, in the scope of practice. And I've always been a fan of blending Eastern and Western medicine. And even though my needling education is 99% Western medicine, in the last probably eight months to, no, actually longer than that, a little bit more than a year, you know, kind of been traveling down this Eastern medicine pathway. And, and I, I really think that when you start looking at certain things like needles, like instrument assisted techniques, right, which is really known as gua sha, um, cupping, things that have been around yoga, things that have been around for thousands of years, there's a reason they've been around for thousands of years. And so to really sort of look at that and look at um, this concept of some of the Chinese medicine stuff, really Chinese medicine is about observational consensus medicine, right? They looked at thousands of people or billions of people over thousands of years recorded their, their results. And that's what was known as, as Chinese medicine. And, and so it was just observational consensus medicine. And what we like to do in Western medicine is reverse engineer that stuff. And so a lot of times when we don't understand what's going on, it's just because we haven't reverse engineered it yet. It doesn't mean that it's wrong just because we don't have the evidence. Doesn't mean it doesn't work, right? We've just figured out what ice does in the last year or two. So let's not try to act like we have a great understanding of any of the interventions 
decisions that we apply. Um, and so needles just kind of, um, became a really large part of my practice. And the more I study and the more I read about it, the more we can affect pain and descending inhibitory control mechanisms. There's some great research coming out about the use of needles um, with getting people off of opioids because we can tap into the endogenous opioid system within people. And so there's so many cool things about it. And again, I just, I love that concept of blending Eastern and Western medicine on a lot of different levels and sort of honoring where things come from. Um, so yeah, it's just become a really cool part of my practice. And, um, and the more I learn, the more I continue to want to know. But at the end of the day, it's all about movement, right? Because it's not about sticking needles in people. It's about getting people to move better. Every intervention I do from a manual standpoint is about loading and about getting people to move better. Because I don't care if it's my 75 year old mom or my 25 year old professional athlete, they both need to move better. So if my on the table interventions are not creating improvement in their function, then my on table interventions are not doing anything, right? It's good to make people feel better. That's a good thing, but people need to function better. So it's all about movement. And I feel like that's kind of like the trap, right? Cause I've been banged up and it's like, you get better. You're like, okay, fuck, I'm all right. And then you just kind of keep doing what you were doing before. Next thing you're like, well, shit, I'm back where I started. And it's not being conscious of the root cause. If it were like a pattern-based issue that started to cause the pain, you know, the, the intervention should come in. And then that's when the work begins to re, I guess, repattern or reprogram or change whatever you need to change to, so you don't find yourself back where you started. Right. Exactly. And, and because like with needles, for example, there's so many times like baseball is a great example of everybody's got the lack of rotation in their shoulder that's a lot of people want to try to fix. And, and I used to do the same thing, right? I'd spend 20 minutes stretching out guys' shoulders. And, and then what I started finding was, you know what, I would drop a couple needles into their shoulder and they would get a 20 degrees of range of motion increase within five minutes of that needle being in, right? I'd take the needle out, recheck the range of motion, boom, it's totally normal. Well, one of two things, needles are magic or it's not what I thought it was, right? So even when I would think that this person had something totally structural, it wasn't structural whatsoever, it was neurological. And by introducing a really novel stimulus like a needle into the body, the, ner the nervous system input is gonna dictate output every time. And I've spent a career trying to fix people's motor output. And what I've really done over the last three to five years is focus on changing people's sensory input. If you change sensory input, you will change motor output every time. And that's what a needle does. A needle is gonna change the sensory input going into the system. And it's absolutely gonna create a motor output change. And so when I see a huge crazy motor output change like that, I know I abandoned my manual therapy and we go right to exercise after I take those needles out. Cause guess what? It wasn't a structural thing. It wasn't collagen. It wasn't GERD. It wasn't all this other stuff. It was a neurological hold that the body had. And now I've got a window, right? And if I don't capitalize on that window by teaching the agonist how to work through the new range of motion, the antagonist how to work through that new range of motion and whatever body part to stabilize so that body, that thing can move better, then I've lost my opportunity, right? It's just like nutrition. We preached forever. Hey, make sure you get your post-workout nutrition within 10 to 15 minutes of your workout or your window closes, to reabsorb nutrients and reabsorb and re, re um, nourish your body. Same thing here. If I don't, so you know that's not true, right? I know, I know. Okay. Right? But we preached that. Forever. Well, we preached it, but uh, yeah. Uh, but 
you did it. You brought up a fantastic point. Like, uh, and this is something that I get into with a lot of like the stretching and a lot of sometimes when we work with people, uh, like they want to over mobilize. And I try to tell them that if you go and you do all this really cool, and this is some of Kelly's stuff, like you guys work and try to fight to get all this new range of motion. But if you don't actually go use that range of motion in a meaningful way, like lifting weights, to do new range of motion, it's lost. And you're just wasted your fucking time stretching all day. That's um, right. You've got your window of opportunity. And if you don't make a change there, then yeah, you're absolutely going to lose it. And you go right back to where you started. Uh, the, when, when she was talking about the needles, it sounds very similar to Dr. Tom's uh, different color glasses. Mm-hmm. So we have a, a you know, Tom Inkledon out in mm-hmm. Arizona. Yeah. Tom had this deal where he was working with uh, like ALS patients and different ones. And he was making them uh, wear different colored glasses because the input that they were bringing in information was different. And all of a sudden it was like fixing some neurological issues. And he's like, um, you know, everybody always points to it, but he's like sometimes some really simple things of just changing the input and the way people are taking in information. I mean, like you're hitting pressure points, I assume, with the needles. And I mean, like you said, like with the Chinese medicine, there has to be a reason that people have used this for thousands of years. So I'm, I'm, I'm in it. Yeah, I did. Yeah, it's really, really, really interesting. Every time I get acupuncture, uh, I sleep better than I've slept in like, been like, oh my God, like you wake up and you're like, was I drooling? This is great. <laughs> Anything else, big guy? Yeah, uh, a few things. Uh, two. Does it do with your boning shoes? No. So we'll, they're we'll conclude with that. Souls. Uh, I, 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 thought the, I thought the soles were pink. Getting back on topic, uh, I'm hearing about from my friends at the collegiate strength and conditioning field a change in approach. So universities that have major medical centers attached to them are starting to go away from sports performance and athletic trainers and go more towards physicians, surgeons, and using the like the university's medical center as their performance center versus uh, you know sports performance coach, ATCs, and so on and so forth. Have you seen have you seen any of this go down? Because it's, it's a big money change, and it's almost a fear for the the collegiate strength and conditioning professional because those big money schools that they used to have opportunities are changing their ways. So have you seen anything about this or do you see, is this a good thing? Is this a potential bad thing? What's, what's your position? So just to make sure I understand correctly, cause I, I don't work in the collegiate setting, but I definitely see what happens at the professional level is a lot of times what will happen is a hospital or a physician will pay a whole bunch of money to sort of sponsor that. Right. And it's, you see that all the time, like whatever hospital is the official sponsor of the, you know, Phoenix, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, whatever the team is. And so, you know, they start paying money because it's marketing dollars. And so they start paying money to sort of be the official chiropractor, the official physician. Um, And so, yeah, I think when we start, um, but yeah, are are we really sort of putting the athletes healthcare needs? Are we we leaving that to the highest bidder, right? Are we giving it to the, to the best clinician or the best interventionist? And so, yeah, I get, I think that's a really conflict of interest. I think, I think it's a slippery slope. Um, is that sort of what you're talking about there? That it's yeah, kind and, of like they. I just had some conflicts that school was quick to go to the knife, right? Their budget for surgeries was astronomical and well, they, they wouldn't hire. You know, the team coach. doctor pays to be the team doctor, right? Well, at the collegiate level, yeah, it's 
No, I mean, it happens in the pros. I mean, um, well, that's you know, we're the NovaCare Center, which sponsored the Eagles, uh, you know, their doctors were our team doctors, not because they were the best, but because they paid the most money. But at money. the collegiate level, it is, is going, trending towards this. But rather than using movement to solve movement problems, as we were talking about, they were, they're quick to the surgery I guess for well, the if you think about like like the orthopedic surgeon, and this is you know, I mean, the, um, they really only have, I mean, uh, really one tool. I mean, they have surgery, and without that, I mean, like I, I know that maybe some injuries could have been uh, rehabbed and different things, but I mean, that's what they do. I mean, you know, if they get you under the knife, they're going to do what they do. I mean, I, I I went in to have a um, a meniscus tear cleaned up, and I came out with an ACL reconstruction. They didn't wake me up and tell me. The doctor's like, oh, your ACL was torn, so we just replaced it. <laughs> I would have liked to have them, well, at least give me an opportunity to like, hey, do you want your ACL replaced? They just did it. Well, we don't want to put you under twice. And you're like, well, I mean, that's if they're in there, they're going to do what they're going to do. Yeah, it's but you it's still tough, move like but... an asshole. <laughs> I, I'm still an asshole? No, you still move like an asshole. Not you. The, the proverbial you. Proverbial you. <laughs> well, would I move better with boating shoes? It's really tough yeah. because <laughs> when we look at, um, I had the opportunity to be on um, on a panel with uh, multi, a lot of different organizations, everything from military to pro sport to the um, IOC um, to university, and it, and it was um, through the NSC, uh, NCAA, and it was all about pain, and so I was the only person that had the ability or my task was to present non-pharmacological management of people's pain. And so everything else was either pharmacological management of pain, right? And so of course, surgeries, pain is not a great reason to do surgery. But the problem is, is that when you look at a lot of our interventions with the exception of exercise, right? Exercise is about the only thing that we have a decent amount of evidence on. And actually, believe it or not, there's a lot of evidence on acupuncture too, which I know sounds really convenient coming from someone who owns a dry needling education company. But with that said, there's some decent evidence on acupuncture and pain, and there's some great evidence on movement with pain. Everything else we do, there's really minimal evidence for it. And so what, what I get that people are quick to go to medication and to go to sur surgical intervention if it's indicated, if there's a torn structure, because it's really black and white to fix a torn structure. When you start looking at the literature as far as reliability and validity of movement assessments and movement interventions, it's absolutely horrible. And so really, when you start to look at it, just moving, right? It doesn't even matter what kind of movement you do. Just get off your ass and, and that's going to make you feel better. So that, that's a big thing. And when that's the kind of research that we have to back up what we do, it makes it really, really difficult because there's a lot of evidence on medicine and there's a lot of information on fixing torn structures. So it, it's it's... I don't agree with it, but I do get how people can get wrapped up in that early surgical intervention versus going through going through um, exercise and kinetic assessments because the, the the literature and evidence to back that up is really poor. Uh, don't we see that the most in back injuries as well? Like um, I I can think of ten people off the off the top of my head that had severe back pain went in and went in to have it fixed or fused or whatnot and actually have worse back pain today than they did. And, and on top of it, the, you know, the fusing in this has really limited their range of motion. So, I mean, whenever I hear somebody's like, oh, I'm interested in getting, I'm always like, ooh, there are just a million things I would try before I went under the knife with the back. It just, it's very yeah. inconclusive whether or not it works. 100%. You've, you've got to be able to treat the person and not treat the MRI. Um, but it's really, you know, it's really nice to say, oh, here's the MRI. Here's what's broken. Here's how we're going to fix it. It's so nice and neat, but we just know it's not, it's not that nice and neat. 
Next question. Sports early specialization. So you had the opportunity to work with some high-level baseball players. So I'm curious, of all those guys over the years, how many specifically or only played baseball? How many were multi-sports athletes? Did it even matter? So many um, were multi-sport athletes. And, you know, when you look at like a guy like Carl Crawford, right, which I know he's been retired for a while, but there's a guy that was recruited from UCLA basketball, um, he had the ability to play, um, football at Nebraska and he was drafted in whatever round he was drafted at for major league baseball. It's like, he was an athlete, right? And he was really successful at what he did. He chose baseball. And you can look at that story over and over and over again in baseball. Um, and you know, it definitely has shifted over time in the last 10 years with this early specialization, they're doing some amazing work out of the university of Wisconsin, Madison about early specialization. And, and what we're now seeing is now we've got the evidence to back up what we have known, right? Early specialization is not a good thing. Kids need to be kids, develop fundamental skills like balance coordination, eye-hand coordination, all of those sorts of things um, because early specialization is associated with more injury. And again, like university of Wisconsin, Madison is really sort of leading the charge on some of that literature and some of that research, which is really, really cool. Specialized. So you're against specializing in synchronized swimming. Yes. I can't think of a single person who's not a sport coach. That's a financially tied to a team sport or some form of club sport that actually believes in specialization. I have like, it, it's the weirdest thing. Anybody that I've ever talked to, that's at least like moderately switched on human being. And you're extremely switched on, uh, like sees the dangers in early specialization in terms of like overuse injuries and in kids and poor athletic development. And like, you know, if you look at like, um, you know, like you said, hand eye coordination balance, you know, uh, the ability to judge space, I mean, inter, you know, spatial relationship intrinsic, um, and both, you know, like, you know, how I, how I move my body and not only in relationship to an object, but also to a person. Um, it, everybody's always like, uh, do as many sports you can as much opportunity, but yet it seems like we have more and more kids that are specializing. So it's kind of a weird piece where everybody I know is like, no, it's the worst thing we could do. It's going to hinder athletic development. And yet everybody is specializing more. And it's like my little girls just turned seven and they play on a um, soccer team and the they got done playing soccer and the coach was like fighting for us to sign up for his club team so the kids can go play club soccer. Oh, we got to do this. And I'm like, dude, seriously. He's like, well, you know, if they want any chance to play in high school or after or after high school, they need to start, you know, being uh, getting on club teams and getting people to see him. I'm like, dude, they're seven years old. Yeah. And it's it's so amazing. Like uh, it's almost turned into like this idea of specialization is self-serving for these guys who are either making money from camps or from these club teams in the whole environment. And uh, it's 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 hindering athletic development. And I'm uh, it, like, I can't believe that we have uh, got into this weird thing where, you know, um, the kids are profits. So let's let's get them to play, you know, one sport and get them to specialize and that way I can get into it. So I don't know how we're going to battle that one. That's a, that's an interesting one I've been kind of noodling around. Oh, yeah, it's killing the, the sport of lacrosse. They're shifting into that AAU model, that corrupted basketball. So now I'm, I'm just worried for the love of the game. What, what the love of lacrosse? Yeah. It's, uh, but, I mean, isn't lacrosse one of those sports that um, if you play at a younger age, you're dramatically better? Like, didn't you tell me all the kids that played in high school oh, were yeah. like – unbelievably better. So, I mean, in, in a way, isn't that some early specialization, but I think there's a way to periodize. And more importantly, what I think for periodization is not only in the, 
uh, athletic development model, but I think more just into injury retention. Like, I mean, if I, I think I saw a study that talked about like Tommy John surgeries for kids under the age of 16 oh, has yeah. gone up like 400% pre before the injury. So they're doing the Tommy John's so that the tendon grows back stronger. So the kid doesn't have to worry about that injury later in his life. So, oh, so they're doing the surgery before he gets it. Oh yeah. Have, have you heard this Sue? Yeah, any good surgeon is not going to do that. <laughs> um, Where do you got to go to Mexico for that? Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, you know, there's a lot of kids that live in small towns in this country that don't have Dr. Andrews and Dr. Elitrage and right there. Those, those amazing surgeons are not at their disposal. And so, you know, like if, if you're from that town or whatever, like where you just do what the doctor says and they're not a very good doctor, then yeah, you might be in trouble. Um, so yeah, it's really unfortunate. And I, and I think you're right, John, like there is a, there is a portion right? like tennis, tennis is a great example. If you don't specialize when you're seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, right by high school, these kids are already dropped out of high school. And if they want to go to play professionally, they, they better be in some type of a, a, a program or right by that, by the high school age, right? Same thing with gymnastics. If you're a college gymnastics person you're washed up probably not going right (laughs) so there there are certain sports that sort of lend themselves to early specialization and and i do get that And, and i think it is a very general conundrum as far as like with scholarships right school is so expensive a lot of people can't afford it anymore the only way for people to go is to get a scholarship and so i get the drive from parents and and wanting to make sure that their their kid has that opportunity um so yeah there is definitely that um that balance. But I think you're absolutely right, John. There's a way to periodize it and a way to just somehow give them summers off, allow them to play, allow them to ride bikes, allow them to jump in the pool, allow them to just sort of be a kid. There's got to be a way to periodize it and yet let them sort of focus on that sport at the same time. I don't have the answer. That's not my my patient population, but there, there's got to just be a better way. I'm not saying we've got to go back to when I was a kid, right? Where everybody, like the guys played football in the fall, they played basketball in the winter, they played baseball in the spring and they rode bikes and swam in the summer. Um, You know, I don't think it's realistic to go back to that, but just because of of college and scholarships, but there's got to be a way to sort of, um, to just do it better than play baseball 12 months out of the year. And sounds uh, awful. Kelly's dropped an interesting fact i forget at which point during the weekend i think it was his presentation but the the kid that won the teen crossfit championship the games after two years now he's done because his hips are degenerating so you got this 18 year old kid from the overuse of overuse sports is done oh degenerative hip disease that's not good but he was jammed. That's you crazy. had a lot of at eighteen. Like that's where you. I think you he was. You but, but he was sixteen, and then it, like, uh, yeah, Kelly didn't. Uh, I'm, I'm sure Kelly has is partial to some inside information on that, and I've, sure. I've never heard that. For but we had the opportunity to work with that kid who was world class, like under eighteen CrossFitter who was uh, homeschooled. So yeah, so they. Um, you're gonna love this. So we worked with this kid who was like 16, 17 year old CrossFit phenom. The parents pulled him out of school and homeschooled him so he could train more. And and then he came to our seminar at like 18 and uh, couldn't do anything. 
I mean, like, like did not understand athletic movement, was just good at bilateral hip hinging in a, in a hallway and uh, was upset <laughs> at our seminar that he couldn't do anything. And instead of being like, wow, this is a huge hole that I have because I haven't had an athletic development model. I'm just going to leave and be pissed off because but of this, this. This goes into the biopsychosocial because he pulled up limp during skip drills. So he was unable to successfully compete, uh, complete some of the movements. So pulled up limp. So I don't know if you ever saw those kids like in high school or during sprints or they, they lost a one-on-one match. We see it all the time in, on uh, Sundays in the NFL, like cornerback gets beat and then comes up limping. Just, oh, pull up the hamstring? Just for Dram- the, drama? the drama? end of that play. Yeah, his feelings are hurt. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. limping. Well, you your, no, it's, it's, your, your feelings are in your hamstring. You know? Like, like she, she was talking about the baseball guys. It's, it's better to be injured than get sent down in the minor or to a, a, a lower deal to get sent down. So like guys would rather be injured than get set down. I mean, dude, it's a, it's a strange realization when, you know, you're at your peak physical condition and a dude outplays you. Like there's a lot of guys whose egos are so fragile that they can't say, you know what, he beat me. So then they end up kind of going to the injury or doing one of those things, which, you know, I know when I was a kid, my brother Eddie told me I faked that for years when we were playing basketball. He's like, why always come up with an injury? I'm like, cause you punched me in the face. <laughs> or when I went for that shot, you chucked me in the holly, holly bushes. And the irony of this is, uh, so my brother's a lawyer and he's, uh, in a case right now. And the dude he's in the case with, they were like talking about something and he like recounted the story and he goes, are you John Wilburn's brother? Your brother told that story. I listened to his podcast. Huh. So if you're listening to this, <laughs> how about that? Yeah, you can tell him about pushing me in the holly bush when we were playing one on one basketball as kids. And my brother's like, "Why are you always coming up with injuries?" I'm like, "Oh, great! I got to listen to this." <laughs> Sue, thanks so much for taking time out to chat with us and joining us on the Premier Podcast and Strength and Conditioning. Ing, 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 ing. Um, let's say some folks want to sniff out whatever you're up to. Where can they follow you on uh, the the Instagram, the Twitter? The social media, where should they look for you? Yep, absolutely. Um, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, all just my name, Sue Falsoni. Uh, and then suefalsoni.com, instructionfunction.net are where you can find stuff on my courses and books and all of that stuff. So I'm definitely available on the interweb. Beautiful. Thanks again. And Thank John, you. great job today, Tex. Could use a little more energy out. <laughs> what? <laughs> John, wasn't he looking tired today? Uh, you know, he looked a little disheveled. And then I'm we'll, not wearing my and, shoes. And, <laughs> and then the minute that we got on about his shoes, he just went totally in the tank. No, are you kidding? Oh, I thought he got reinvigorated. No, he went in the tank like that guy who just got beat on the easy juke move on like in you know, a lacrosse. Oh, he came up and he, and yeah, he, he kept grabbing his hamstring over there the minute that all of a sudden we started talking about his boating shoes. It's my hip. Oh. <laughs> Send me a picture of those boat shoes. I want to see them. Don't and worry. I'm sitting them right over. Oh, with a flexed flop, calf. Um, Sue, you're getting off the show. I want to understand that better. Send her the one with that weird quato thing on the top of your foot. What is that? Stop. Squanto? Quato? No. It's Quaid. a total recall. Quaid. Quato. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you guys are great. I had such a blast. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, oh thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks for getting us back on track. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. See you. Right, bye. Bye. bye, guys. Thank you. Drop Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Sue Falsoni under her namesake at Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Take a gander at her courses and publications by heading to structureandfunction.net. Until next time, bye!